Welcome to the Thriving Farmer Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Kilpatrick. Our mission is to inspire, educate, and celebrate sustainable farming. We believe that you can build a profitable, sustainable farm that gives you true farm freedom. Join us as we talk to farmers, innovators, educators, and entrepreneurs to glean their top takeaways in business and life. Hey, Thriving Farmers. This was not supposed to be this podcast this week, but Ellen reached out and Ellen works with people that do the value added producer grant. And uh, the deadline is relatively soon. So we thought that we would bump this week's podcast and let you listen to Ellen talk more about how you can sign up for a value added producer grant and get lots of funds and um, resources to help you build out value added products on your farm. Hope you enjoy. Hey, Thriving Farmers, Michael Kilpatrick here. And this week on the podcast, we have Ellen Raleigh, who's the founder of Ellen Raleigh Creative and Strategy, who works with farmers and other integrity-based product businesses to launch and sell profitable products. Her specialties include CGMP and organic compliance, product development, and go-to market strategy. Her Interest in value-based markets has led her to study the success of the fair trade movement in Germany and England to launch a jam line for an olive oil ranch that was featured in the debut of Martha Stewart's American Made Shop and the found Ellen Raleigh Creative and Strategy. Products she has helped launch can be found in grocery stores like Molly Stone's, specialty shops like uh, Be Bright Market, magazines like Food and Wine, and high-end spas like the Monarch mountain resort. She believes that products made with passion and conviction can change our relationship to the land and to each other. Welcome, Ellen. Hi, Michael. It's so great to talk with you today. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about how did you get into this whole space? I love that question. So I first came to agriculture later in life in college. I was actually studying abroad Um, and I had the opportunity to live and work alongside some fair, some rice farmers in Thailand. And through that experience, I noticed one, I had never really seen, you know, how, what I was eating in the U S was connected to, to farmers, to the land. I hadn't seen that before. And it was such an amazing thing to me. And I also noticed there that the farmers who had direct control over the product they were selling had a completely different livelihood than those who are just selling a raw commodity to the bulk export market. And that was communities that were more resilient, farmers themselves who had better income and health. And so that was what kind of sparked my interest in how having control over the final product can change the reality of a farm, both financially and just in the enjoyment of the activity. Um, so since then, I, when I came back from that experience, I ended up continuing to research um, these different kinds of ways of selling and buying and working myself on farms in Northern California. And my focus really has always been how does value added actually work? Does it work? How does it work? And how can we support um, those types of markets where, where consumers are buying specifically from farms that they know? Okay, so let's talk about value added for a little bit. So what do you feel that all encompasses? What kind of products would you consider value added? 
So value added, a lot of times when people hear that buzzword, you know, it got really popular about five years ago, yep. um, maybe even 10 at this point. Most people think of what we call a change in physical state. So say you grow strawberries and turn them into jam, tomatoes, mm -hmm. turn it into a sauce. You have sheep and you shear the wool and turn it into fiber. You have cattle and you turn it into ground beef. That's called it. That's a change in physical state. But there's this other part of value added, um, which is basically the way that you sell it and how that adds value. Meaning in the marketplace, you can charge a higher price and customers are willing to pay that higher price. So that can be things as simple as organic or biodynamic and even simpler as marketing yourself as local. Mm -hmm. Local produce in the marketplace typically sells for a higher price. So there's a value being added by using that term um, when you're talking about your product. Yeah. And I think the nutrient dense aspect too, like if people can understand oh, sure. what there's a different aspect, but I mean, I, we have a woman in one of our groups that um, started raising rabbits and rapidly realized that she was not good at raising rabbits, but she found mm -hmm. out that she could sell the poop from the rabbits. And oh. I just saw a post in our group where she is now featured on her local co-op shelves with her, um, her product. Totally. So yeah, yeah there's so many. Cool. I could also like that just spurred in me like so like solar powered something or other could mm -hmm. be considered a value add. There's there's so there's a lot of it. It goes definitely beyond just that change in physical state. I love that example. Now let's talk about advantages of this because obviously on one aspect, there's a lot of people who are talking about the whole thing of, oh, well, I got to make jam. Well, I've got to get a kitchen. I've got to get pots. I've got to figure out the recipe. I've got to get state licensing. And then I've got glass to deal with all of this. So it's obviously on that aspect, people get a, um, a little bit afraid of it, but then there's huge rewards. So let's talk through some of the rewards for the value added side of things. So value added can have great rewards. And I love that you brought up this question because can is a very important word in that sentence. Um, and the rewards, I mean, the biggest reward is hopefully if you set it up um, correctly, I could say, or if, if you're looking at your costs as you go along and you set it up in a way that's going to be healthy for your farm, the biggest added bonus is that the profit per pound of your produce can go up. So in that example of the jam, say you're selling your, what's an example? Say you're selling, I'm just going to make up these numbers. Say you're selling your strawberries for, I don't know, these numbers might be completely ridiculous, but you're selling them for $3 a pound at the market. Um, and you're selling them then at like $150 a pound for wholesale you can make a jam out of that and possibly make eight to $10 for that jar of jam, depending on your local market. And it takes say one pound to produce that product. And it costs you like $3 and 50 cents all in, or it costs, it takes you a half of a pound to make that product yeah. and it costs you three fifty all in. So as you can see there now, if you reduce it down, to how much you're making per pound of those strawberries, all of a sudden you're making on the jar, you know, $4 and 50 cents, and it took you half a pound to make the jar. So your, your um, profit per pound of produce goes up. The really important thing to say, to highlight is that can, because 
I see a lot of people rush into value added again, cause there's buzz around it without really looking at, okay, what are my cost of goods? What is my upfront? What is that upfront investment and how am I going to make it back? And I definitely have seen it work for so many farms. I don't think there's, you know, one type of farm it's going to work for over another. It's just the way that you go about it to ensure that at the end of the day, because the whole point of it is at the end of the day, you're making more money. You're not just expending all this energy to make the same amount you would if you're just selling your produce. And I'll actually add on one more point is... A great thing about value added often is that for vegetable and fruit farmers specifically is it can utilize produce that otherwise wouldn't get sold. So most, especially tomato farmers know that there's a huge loss in crop from, you know, seconds, things that don't look good, things that have certain kinds of, you know, white spots or other, um, problems with the produce that wholesale and retail are not going to buy it, but you need that amount. There's always going to be that amount of overage because it takes growing some that look ugly to get the ones that look nice. And so the, the really great added benefit of a value added related to fruits and veggies is often produce that you're just throwing away or composting, you're making no money on all of a sudden now you can make money on not just during the season, but actually year round because you're able now to have a product when it's out of the season, when, when the crazy busyness of tomato season is over, you still have a product that you can be selling. Yeah, I think too also. Um, so we had a farmer in New York that um, was near us and he started off by selling chicken. But then mm-hmm. he moved very quickly into selling pieces and parts. And then he moved into taking the backs and the feet and the heads and making stock. Mm-hmm. And then he went, but yeah, so it's just the taking everything that you can't use too. Like you said, the, the berries that aren't beautiful or the tomatoes that are a little bit ugly. Um, for us, it's taking all our seconds on mushrooms and turn them mm-hmm. into either a dried mushroom product or a mushroom stock. Oh, yes. So yeah, there's definitely. so much that can be done. And again, yeah, you're just optimizing more. Um, mm-hmm. So maybe it's maybe it's not that you're making more per pound, but maybe it's now you're utilizing 100% instead of, let's say, 60 or 70% of your product. Exactly. Yeah. All right. Yeah. So we've kind of like laid that out. I think we laid it out to folks. Okay. So, you know, what is out there? What's the value of value added? Why they should be doing it? What are some of the common um, trip ups or common reasons that people don't do value added? Well, you mentioned one, you know, it is in a lot of ways, it's a new business. It's a new whole part of your business that you have to figure out. Um, and I think that will be overwhelming to a lot of folks, totally understandably, um, especially if they haven't done it before. Um, There are, depending on where people live, there might be co-packers in the area that work with smaller quantities, which can be a great way for people to start out if that is one of their uh, main concerns. Um, That again is more for say veggies and um, fruits, but there's also possibly people kind of doing what it is you wanna do that will do it for you for a fee. at at the beginning while you kind of understand how to do it. Um, That's, I'd say that is the biggest one. 
and then one thing people should keep into account is uh, whether or not they can sell it in the same place that they are selling it now. So for example, in California, there's some counties where, you know, jarred things don't sell in the same part of the farmer's market necessarily as fresh produce, um, depending on what it is that you're selling. So to some people, it also is a sales question. You know, there might have to be the person that they're selling raw produce to at their local grocery might not be the same person that they're going to have to speak to for the product. And so that can feel a little overwhelming, especially if they haven't, you know, um, taken any classes or gotten any guidance on how you sell a product. Um, but those kind of resources are definitely out there. And let me see, can I think of anything else? Yeah, I, I think to me, mainly when I talk to folks, because um, I've talked, I've talked and taught about starting value added product lines for years, I think the main thing is just the overwhelm of the steps at the beginning, and not knowing if it's going to pay off. So not having like done like just sat down and looked at the numbers. And the compliance piece sounds sometimes overwhelming and scary, but all of these things, one, there's resources out there. And two, if, if you kind of tackle it step-by-step, step, they are surmountable in my opinion. Um, but I think those are the main things that kind of scare people away. Yeah. I would say that the aspect of just going out and doing it, um, yeah. because I mean, like we used to, so we did value added for a number of years with our farm and we started with uh, salsa, but we had to get the recipe approved to the state. And mm -hmm. I mean, that wasn't that much work, but it was just one of those things we'd never done before. And the form looked long and arduous. And yeah. we did it, we got approved. We ended up realizing that we should have gone to a co-packer for it. So mm -hmm. that was where we should have been. Um, but um, I mean, we did sweet potato biscuits. We did, you know, all sorts of stuff in a certified kitchen. Um, but I think part of it too, is just finding that certified kitchen. And if you think you need to build one that you think it's so expensive. Mm -hmm. um, so that same friend that was doing the stocks, his certified kitchen was literally the most ghetto certified kitchen I'd ever seen. I mean, yes, it was bad, but he got it approved. Uh -huh. And, um, you know, the, the, they came through and he said, all I did was I read through what they said they needed mm -hmm. and I followed it to the letter. Yep. And, and that's yeah. different to where you are, like different. There are a lot of local areas now that are, um, passing these ordinances to make it easier for farms to get approval of on-farm processing facilities uh -huh. because it is actually a processing facility for the most part. And this definitely doesn't apply to meat. Like meat has its own whole list of compliance stuff, but for all these other kinds of products that we're talking about, um, it's not typically the, the level of compliance is not like a certified kitchen, like a restaurant would need it's this lower level of um, just what, you know, how you have to have the floors, et cetera, that's for a processing kitchen. And it is easier than building out a whole commercial kitchen like a restaurant would have yeah. to do. Usually they want to see like a triple wash sink in there. Um, mm -hmm. Being able to like easily clean the floors and walls. Yeah. yeah. yeah 
cleanable, uh, sanitizable surfaces, that sort of yep, stuff. So yeah, totally. super simple. Um, but again, if you don't know that, and it mm -hmm. also comes down to the inspector too, because some of these inspectors are trying to feel like they're God or something, and they mm -hmm. need to kind of impress upon you just how smart they are. But again, yeah. it comes down to the rules or regs, and I would print those off and have those with you. Mm -hmm. And then just when they ask questions, you're like, well, what does it say right here? Mm -hmm. So yeah. Um, yeah, there's that aspect that kind of help you navigate those waters. And I have to say, California is probably the most regulated state. And that's the that's where I'm calling from. That's where I mainly work with folks on this. So I always, I always, when I talk to people from other states, I'm like, if we can do it in California, there is a way for you to do it because your yeah, your standards are are not going to be as strict as ours. Yeah. Yeah. So let's pivot a little bit um, because we originally connected over the value added producer grant. So yeah. let's talk a little bit about that. Why does it all of a sudden just pop up every so often mm -hmm. and what can it mean for farmers? Yeah. So the value added producer grant is um, a program of the USDA rural development, USDA RD. And it gets, it has to get funded each time that it is announced. So unfortunately it's not something we typically know ahead of time that it's gonna be announced, but it usually gets announced every 12 to 18 months has been my experience. I've written for this grant over the last three grant cycles and those have been spaced every 12 to 18 months. And um, I first came to know about this grant cause I was actually just helping a local farm here um, with their, they have starts and I love baby plants is one of my favorite parts of a farm. So I was just helping out a few days a week um, for fun and they needed an extra hand in their greenhouses. And their other side of their business was they have apple orchards that they um, juice the apples and turn into apple cider and apple cider caramels and all these other really delicious treats. And they had heard about this grant and it was re-announced and they had, they knew the kind of work that I had done for other farms in the area with value added. And they actually are the ones who brought it to my attention that first time. Um, and the, the reason that I'm such a, like a, I feel like I'm the one man, like, one woman promotional campaign for the value added producer grant, um, un, you know, not sponsored of course, but is because I've seen the impact that it has on farms that are trying to do value added. So the main kind of purpose of this grant is to, um, it's to, I'd say it's to bridge the gap that that happens with all those startup costs we were talking about. So you, like you beautifully mentioned that earlier in the podcast, just like, you know, it takes buying the jars and it takes all of these things. And where does the funding come for all that? Like, how do you afford to start this? And that's really what this grant does. So this grant will cover like processing fees. It covers um, added ingredient costs, packaging, promotional campaigns, um, e-commerce shipping, different things around your website. And it's all those, those costs that make, I think, I think, I mean, I've never had them say this to me, but it seems the point of the grant is yes, value added is great for farmers. 
how do we get them help to put in in place the pieces that are gonna make it actually run. And so it's great for people who are starting out with a value-added product. And it's also great for people who have one, but kind of need like this leg up to expand. Got it. Yeah, that makes sense. So it comes every 12 to 18 months. And then when they announce it, how long do you have to apply for it? It's always very quick. Um, this year, applications are due at the end of March. So it's typically, you know, eight to 12 weeks is what they give you to apply. And wow. it's just one, it's not rolling applications. It's not the kind of grant that if you get it in earlier, you get priority. They start looking at them once they're all um, submitted. Okay. All right. So what are the main eligibility requirements? So there's some general eligibility requirements. And then of course, you know, there's more specific ones um, that the federal registrar like announcement goes into. But the main eligibility requirements are that you have to be doing a value-added venture and they um, define value-added in that broader sense that we were talking about. So a change in physical state, um, produced in a way that adds value, that's your organic, locally produced, um, uh, segregated in some way. So that would be, say, you grow oats and you have some oats that are, um, that you don't put wheat, you don't interplant wheat in the field so that you can call them gluten-free. That would be an example of that. Um, and then there's a, a energy, um, a renewable energy piece to it that I honestly don't know too much about because I haven't, and I don't think many people apply underneath that part because it has to be a value added venture. So kind of like walnut holes that then you're using for energy, for example. Yeah, um, I also saw something about like biodigesters and stuff. So I was assuming- Yeah, if that's yeah. in that section, yeah. It seemed a little bit strange to have that all grouped together, but again, it's yeah. the government. <laughs> yeah. And I think that that doesn't end up being a focus of many applications, but there must be some that have gotten funded. Um, and then you have to be a farmer and they have a few different, you know, they have classifications. So an independent producer or a co-op or a majority um, control, farm controlled entity, there's a few different classifications of what kind of business you can be, but basically meaning it, you have to be a producer. You can't be someone who's just like purchasing from local farms, for example. Um, and then the, you're going to apply for a specific commodity. So, and then have a project related to it. So for example, you'd apply for apples that you're turning into apple cider. So in that case, um, one of the requirements is that 50% or more of that commodity. So apples in this case, you actually grow yourself. So if it's like an apple, lemon, grape juice, you could buy the lemons, you could buy the grapes, but you have to, and you could even buy some of the apples, but at least 50% of them you, you have to have grown. Um, and the other main requirement is that the project you're asking to fund related to your value-added product has to increase your customer base and increase the revenue to the producer. So that's kind of the main gist. 
of requirements. Gotcha. Okay. So what, what's some of the kinds of things that can spend on this? I know we talked a little bit about like promotion and stuff. You can't, Mm -hmm. can you buy equipment with this? Can you hire labor? That's a great question. Cause that's one of the biggest questions I've gotten so far. So, um, equipment, no, this isn't an equipment grant. Um, there are sometimes if there's like a small piece of equipment, like a labeling machine, that's, you know, a few hundred dollars and you're asking for $50,000, they might approve that. Um, but it's not, not, it's not for, if you want to build out a kitchen, say, it's also not for anything related to the actual growing of the commodity. So the project has to be about the value added part. So everything up to when you're adding the value, they don't count as eligible expense. So for example, if you're, um, if you're a, a meat, if you grow uh, cattle and then you're bringing them to a butcher to get slaughtered and then you're picking it up and you're delivering the cuts of meat, the, the drive to the co-packer or the processing facility would not be an expense you could get covered, but the um, picking it up and then bringing it to the customers would, because now it's already cuts of meat instead of a cow. Um, so that's an important distinction. And then it does cover, yeah, things like um, the ingre- other ingredient purchases, packaging, design for professional labels or your logo, farmer's market signage, promotional, um, like flyers for your, you know, to put around your town or radio spots or um, software to manage your CSA, um, your website design. It does, it can include labor, but the labor has to be on the value added part, not the farming part. Um, So like hiring a CSA manager or hiring a salesperson, um, consultants. So there's a whole other, there's two types of grants, a planning grant and working capital grant. Most of what I've talked about, like in terms of these expenses of working capital, the planning grant, if you um, apply for that, could pay for a third party to um, write a feasibility study or a marketing, um, a marketing plan or a business plan. If you have a new venture in mind that you need to see written out first, um, digital advertising, uh, those kind of expenses. Gotcha. So this might cover, let's say, a heat shrink machine for shrinking the the caps around jars. Um, because that would be kind of like a very specific piece of equipment? Possibly. So if it's just a small, like tiny part of it, a lot of times they'll say that's okay. And the, the really nice thing it's, it's, I know that's not very exact of an answer, but one of the nice things that I've found about this grant, at least uh, working within California so far on all of the ones I've written is that the, the local USDA RD, um, representatives are very open and helpful in preparing the application. So um, I'll, in small equipment purchases like that, I'll just email them and say like, here's how much we're asking for. Here's this tiny equipment purchase. Here's how much it costs. Can I include this? And they'll tell me right away. Yeah. Gotcha. Okay. And I should say one more thing about the requirements not a requirement, but it's kind of how it works that people should know is that it is a matching grant. 
So um, that means it's a one-to-one matching grant. So the USDA, RD, so the government's putting in money and you have to put in money. The nice thing, the added nice bonus though, is that 25% of your half. So that's, or sorry, 50% of your half or 25% of the total project can be in kind. And ah. that's typically the, the value of the raw commodity and your, your own work on the project. Yeah, your um, labor. Yep, your own labor. So then in the end, usually when I prepare these applications, what it ends up being is 25% in kind, 25% your cash, and then 50% the grant funding. So you're really only putting in 25% ca- cash at the end of the day. Gotcha. Gotcha. That makes sense. Hey, farmers looking to grow your farm this year. Maybe you need funding. So you're looking to get a a loan or for some equipment or a greenhouse or supplies. We want to hire more people on your farm because you need to grow it. Well, if that's the case, you need our free training called the four stages to a profitable farm. We walk you through everything from your systems to figuring out your finances to then going out and getting financing for your farm, whether that be through a private lender or through a USDA loan. So we literally just closed on a micro loan from the USDA and uh, we're gonna walk you through in this training the four stages that you need to go through in order to find that kind of funding. And so what I want you to go to is growingfarmers.com forward slash stages. And we'll get you signed up to attend that training on February 8th. All right. So let's explore this a bit. Say we had, let's, let's just give our mushroom farmers example. We're producing a little more than we can. What, what could we go out and get a a grant for? So if you want to just continue selling mushrooms um, and you see that, say, Say you're really saturated in this one area of your local community, but you see that, you know, the other side of the state, there's a lot of stores Mm -hmm. that want to purchase from you. Yes. And you want to keep selling mushrooms. You don't want to turn it into anything else. This could hope this could pay for if you don't already have it, you know, sell sheets and other things you need to approach stores and then possibly like a salesperson and a delivery person to be able to make the run to the other part of the state. All of this because you're selling it as a local, it's within 400 miles. So you're selling it as a local (laughs) product. Um, Or maybe it's that, you know, when you're selling it in stores right now, you're just selling it like it's just bulk. And you realize, oh, like nobody's really getting to know my farm this way. And the buyers that I work with are like, you know, people really like those little like cello packs and they buy those more easily. So maybe this grant instead pays for that packaging and pays for you to work with a designer to develop the label for the packaging, um, things like that. What about paying for recipe development? It does not pay for R&D. That's okay. an important part too. Yeah. Okay. So no R and D. No R and D. But it would be for packaging. So if we're coming up with a brand new type of packaging for it or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, what about like uh, filming a promotional video series? Yeah, it could. It could for like your website or whatever. Yep. Yeah, it could cover that. Um, okay. If you wanted to start being a mushroom CSA instead, like it could. And then of course, if you want to, if you're like, we're gonna start you know, grinding this up, like you were talking about, 
Yeah, um, that it mushroom could, powders. The, yeah. yeah, making a mushroom powder, say mix that has like paprika and mushroom powder and sesame seeds and like something else. Yeah, that could pay for those other ingredients. It could pay for it whether or not whether it could pay for labor if you're hiring people to make the product or the co-packer fees if you find yeah. a co-packer to make it. Okay, and then it could pay cool. for like the shipping to customers if you're and your e-commerce site and etc. Wow, that's extensive. Yeah. <laughs> Sign mm-hmm. me up. <laughs> um, so what are some of the eligibility aspect for this? And the does the farmer have to be in business for a certain amount of time or talk to us a little bit about that side of things? You know, I haven't seen anything that says they have to be in business for a certain amount of time. One of my earliest, um, one of my earliest uh, clients that I worked with on this grant, um, they had, this was their second season at that point. Um, so most of what I'm talking, it's, it's hard. Cause like, there are of course, all these like specifics about the grant and I'm trying to talk about it yeah. in a general sense, but there, so a little digging down a little bit more, there's kind of two levels of the grant. One is if you're asking for up to $50,000, so the full project would be up to $100,000. That's typically who I work with and the advice that I have to give is yeah. around that level um, because you don't need any sort of added feasibility study or business plan uh, or marketing plan to attach to the application. When you get above that, then they, then you end up, one, needing those professional plans the above 50, because so then it's from 50000 to $250,000. Um, and then it gets into like, there's two different types of applications. There's one that's market expansion. And then there's, which is obviously like, you've been selling this already and you're expanding into a market. And then there's one that's where you're launching something new. So it gets a little more complicated above the $50,000. Gotcha. Yeah. So probably best for people to stay below that just to get started. And then maybe the second one, they go for more than that. Yeah. And that's a great point is that you can't. um, So once you apply for say a certain project, you can't necessarily apply for that same project again, but that doesn't mean you can't apply in a different year for that same commodity. So for example, the mushroom farm example, say that first year you're really tackling the packaging piece that you want to have these clamshells. So you apply for something that's all the costs related to that. And then another year you could still apply for expanding into another part of the state that's within that 400 mile range of local. And so you, it's a great point that you made that, you know, people don't have to think of this as like a one and done situation. What would your top advice be for folks who are planning to write this grant? So first, I'd say if you're interested from hearing this conversation, I would get in touch with your USDARD for sure, just to make sure that what you're thinking about doing is going to be eligible. Because as you can tell when I'm talking, there are these like general eligibility, but then it can get down into more and more detail. Um, So instead of, you know, reading the whole thing yourself, I just encourage you to talk to them because in my experience, they've been really um, a great resource. And then my next biggest piece of advice is to actually create a project worth funding. 
So instead of just thinking about how do I write this grant, really first think about what's the project that's going to meet my goals for my farm. So what is going to bring the profit back to my farm that I want it to? So really looking at your numbers, really understanding who your market is and making sure that you're expanding in a way that is something that they want. You know, I think a lot of times we are so passionate about what we grow that we think more about, about the reason we have for selling something than the reason our buyers have for buying it. So really taking the first part of your process of this app of preparing the application to tease through the project and come up with something that's really going to benefit you. Cause if you, I think there are fundable projects, but if they're not set up in a way that you can actually, you know, manage the project and then receive the benefit from it, yes, you'll get money, but it is the point just to get the funding or is the point really to move your farm forward? Um, so that's my second biggest advice. And then my third is to use the tools that the USDRD gives you and have a process for moving through the application. They have a great toolkit that includes a lot. It ends up just really guiding. Um, so 30, 32% of the applications that typically it's around 32%, I should say, of the applications that get submitted every year end up never making it to the reviewer because they just aren't complete. And they, so they have these really great resources to help make sure that you submit everything. So follow those and then really like have a systematic way that you go through the application so that you can get it all done in time. Gotcha. Yeah, mm -hmm. that makes sense. Now you also do some, you've worked on these a while and you also work with folks on, if people want to reach out for more questions or to, to work with you on this, what would you have a website or something that they can, they can find? Yes, definitely. So I, uh, my website is ellenraleigh.com and there's a section called tools and you'll see um, a value-added producer grant writing tips webinar on there if you want some more information on what we've talked about today. Um, there's not a whole section of my website on the grant writing because it's just such a small piece of what mm -hmm. I do for value-added producers. But then on my Instagram, which is Raleigh Creative Strategy, if you go to the profile link, I also have a link there that has the replay and kind of spells out the two ways that I work with people on this grant. Gotcha. Okay. And Raleigh is R-A-W-L-E-Y. Yes. Thank you. All right. So, well, Ellen, thank you so much for your time today. If you, what final advice would you like to leave with folks? Oh, that's a great question. Apply? I, <laughs> yes, apply. And um, I talk a lot about how to build a budget for this grant and then mm. prioritize it. Because of course we could use we could all use a lot of support and, yeah. and then you have to whittle it down to what is going to be actually the most impactful. And I really encourage people when they're thinking whether they're going to apply for this grant or not, um, when they're thinking about their goals, 
and their budget for the new year and which things to include and which things not to include, how to move forward with what they sell and what they don't sell to also consider what you're most excited about because what you're most excited about is going to create excitement in your customers and it's going to motivate you to keep working on your farm. I think we sometimes get so lost in the numbers um, when we're trying to strategize around our next step that we forget to just also tune in to what feels best in our body and what just makes us excited to get up tomorrow and do the work. So mm -hmm. that would be my, my last piece of advice. So don't just create it because you can create it because you're actually excited and passionate about it. Yes. Cause there's so many options mm -hmm. like that mushroom farm. We were talking like your mushroom farm. Yeah. There's like 10 different ways you could go about selling oh. your mushrooms, yes. but those 10 different ways have a different day-to-day -day reality. And which is the day-to-day -day reality that you want to live. Oh, that's know? a whole nother podcast right there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, Ellen, thank you again so much. I really appreciate your time today. Yes. It was such a pleasure talking to you and thank you for inviting me on the podcast. Hey, Thriving Farmers, have you checked us out on YouTube lately? We have a bunch of new content there, including a few rants by me. I uh, want to tell you, you don't want to miss them. Um, I actually go rant about you know some of the problems I see in our space and some of the challenges I see farmers uh, facing. So go check that out. We've got instructional videos over there as well. Talk about setting up our new farm here in Ohio and all the steps we're going to do that, as well as just tutorials and tips on best practices for all sorts of things on the farm. So go ahead, check over at Growing Farmers on YouTube and see the new content we put together for you. Hey, Thriving Farmers, Michael Kilpatrick here. Next week on the podcast, we will be joined by Kim Goodling, who is a shepherd in Vermont. She'll be sharing about her sheep. She will be sharing about how they've built a business in Vermont with uh, on-farm stays, agritourism, and uh, maple syrup, and the sheep. And so I want you to join me. It's a great conversation talking about how they have built a different lifestyle up there in Vermont. So there you have it. Another episode in the books. So I'd love if you would hop on over to iTunes and leave us a rating and a review. Those mean everything to us. We love to hear what you're thinking. If you have a podcast guest that you can recommend, please pop on over to the Thriving Farmer podcast website and leave us a review. That's thrivingfarmerpodcast.com.